Umaw, and I'm the lead pastor at Genesis, and we are very excited uh, about baptisms here today and uh, all day long and even this evening uh, for our 6 p.m. service, uh, six people that are going to be baptized tonight. So uh, it, it's a great day, and um, I, I'm just grateful uh, for this opportunity uh, to share with you this morning. Um, I was thinking this past week, um, I, I don't know about for you, but um, what kinds of things come to your mind when you think final exams? All right, now, th- now think about that for a second. I mean, maybe for some of you, you think, you know what, I miss those days. Man, if I, I'd love to go back to school again. Uh, maybe there are others of you, if you're like me at all, you look at something or you hear something like that and you think, I, I don't miss those days uh, one bit. Uh, you know, maybe when you think about final exams, it, it kind of creates some pressure or anxiety inside of you. I, I don't know what, why it is this for me. I don't know if it's right that even now, almost 20 years uh, since college, but I still have some nightmares about final final exams. I'm not kidding. I'm not, not pulling your leg on this. I mean, I, I will have a nightmare about missing an exam or about uh, forgetting to study for an exam or something or not preparing. And, and then all of a sudden I'll wake up and, you know, it's just a relief, you know, to wake up and realize that it was just a dream. It was just a dream. And I, I don't know what it is for me. Maybe it was because I put a lot of pressure on myself. I, I don't know about for you, but I had to work really, really hard for A's and B's. I mean, those types of things didn't come naturally for me. And um, I was thinking back to one of my greatest final exam stories of all times. Uh, I was taking Greek in college, and I took two semesters of Greek, and uh, I got an A the first semester, but I'm telling you, I had to put in every bit of work to do that. And then the second semester, as we came up on final exams, I was right there at that BA. And I'll always remember our professor uh, going into the last week just before final exams telling us, he, he said this, he says, hey, I'm preparing a brand new final exam. And because this was going to be a comprehensive final over the entire year, it was worth something like seven or 800 points, meaning like you could go into the class, you know, with a C, you go into finals, you get the C, but come out with an A if you did well enough on the exam or vice versa. Uh, and so he said, you know, it's a comprehensive exam. I'm writing a new exam. Here's what you need to do. You need to just study every test you've taken all year long. And he did that as a professor. He gave us back every single test we ever took. And so, man, I hopped to it and I, I worked hard, hard, hour after after hours studying for this exam, and sure enough, I went back and studied all of my old tests. And then I had a friend that had taken Greek the year before, and he had his final exam from his class. And so I took it, and I whited out all the answers and just made a practice test out of it. And just again and again working on it. Well, anyways, my buddy studied with me. The day of the final exam finally arrived, and I went in, sat down at the class. The professor put the final exam in front of us, and he didn't create a new final exam. It was the exact same final exam that I had been studying from the year before. Now, I put in all of the time and all of the hours and all of the effort into it, but I got to tell you, I have a little bit of a photographic memory, and so I'm not kidding you. I remembered the answer to every single question on that exam. My buddy and I, I looked down at him at the row, and he looked at me at the very same time, and we just had this look on our face like, we didn't cheat. I mean, we studied for this test. We put all of these hours in on the exam. I'm not going to lie to you. I missed stuff on purpose. I, I missed questions on perfect just so that I didn't get a perfect score, got through that test, got an A, got an in the A in the class and moved on. And uh, so that, that's my greatest final exam stories, but I have some others that didn't quite go that well. But uh, what, what words come to mind to you when you think of final exams? Uh, maybe words like stress, uh, maybe words like anxiety, 
Uh, maybe, you, maybe you think of relief, you know, at least it signals the end of a semester or the end of a year. Um, I was a history and a Bible professor in college, and so so many of my final exams had to do with essay questions. And so every final was always just kind of taking this guess of, okay, what two or three questions is he or she going to ask for this particular final? Well, today, as we continue in the story, uh, we're going to hear Jesus ask a final exam kind of question of his students, uh, of his disciples. And he asks this one question really as a way of testing them, but also as a way of evaluating uh, their understanding of who he is, who he was. And, and so we're going to spend a little time looking at this important question today because not only did it matter for the disciples, but when you think about it, it's a question that has incredible implications for you and me too. And uh, so uh, we've been, if you're new today, we've been reading through the Bible uh, this year here at Genesis Church. And one of the uh, guides that we've been using for that besides the Bible uh, is a book called The Story. And uh, so I know many of you have been following along with this in, the, uh, in that. Uh, if you've got your own Bibles today, turn to the Gospel of Mark, uh, chapter 8, uh, verse 27. Go there. Uh, if you're using something like a smartphone and you have the Version app, uh, we invite you to do the same. If you have the story uh, with you, we're in chapter 25. And over the past few weeks now, uh, we've been studying the life and the ministry of Jesus. And if you've been reading along with us, you've seen Jesus uh, do some incredible things, uh, some amazing things. Uh, you know, he turned water into wine at a friend's wedding. I mean, that, that's a great guest to invite to your wedding. I mean, you want to make sure to, to get that guy on, on your invitation list. He, he healed the sick, the demon-possessed, and the lepers. Uh, he helped make a lame way, a man to walk. He taught with authority and, and told some amazing stories about the kingdom of God and then continually encouraged people to leave what they were doing, to stop what they were doing, and to wholeheartedly uh, follow him. And all this time, all the while in doing this, there's a small group of men and women that have been following him around and watching every move. Now, maybe you hadn't thought about that fact before, that there not only were men but also women following Jesus because, you know, so often we talk about the 12 disciples and these men and his closest friends and followers. And so we forget that there were other men and there were other women who followed Jesus. And you, you, you may or may not know that the culture at this particular time in history um, often was very male-oriented, uh, male-focused, even sexist, uh, if you would. And so, um, you know, what we see, if you read, is that we see that there were women who were involved in Jesus' ministry, and, and sometimes we only read about them in some significant events, but rest assured, they were there, and they were participating in his ministry, and they were supporting, and they were supporting financially and helping Jesus establish his kingdom on earth, men and women, and that's still true today, that no matter who you are, you know, both men and women have a very important, valuable role in, in God's work on this earth and through his church and, and through a church like Genesis. Well, after performing all these miracles and all of this teaching, uh, as we begin in chapter 25, in Mark chapter 8, Jesus uh, gets a little time alone with his disciples in an area around uh, called Caesarea Philippi. And, and this is where Jesus asks 
this important final exam sort of question. Now, first, it's interesting, though, that Jesus chose this particular area, Caesarea Philippi, to ask this question because Caesarea Philippi was kind of a melting pot for anything, everything, religion, philosophy, and thought. I mean, Caesarea Philippi sat on the very northern shore of the Sea of Galilee, and it was the perfect blend of both Greek culture and Roman culture. And the city was primarily non-Jewish, known for its worship of Greek gods and uh, its temples uh, devoted to gods like the ancient god Pan. Well, it's from this particular location that Jesus chooses to ask this great question. And the question is simply this. If you're taking notes and want to write this down, it's the question that he asks of, who do people say that I am? It's a very pointed, almost seems like a very simple sort of question. He asks his disciples, who do people say that I am? And here's how they respond uh, over in Mark chapter 8. And, and actually, let's skip over to verse 28. Verse 28, they replied to him, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others one of the prophets. Now, notice they say John the Baptist. We talked a little bit about him. Uh, They said, or one of the great prophets like Elijah, back this summer, we spent some time talking about Elijah. I mean, these were the common answers, the responses that people were giving of Jesus. I mean, it's what many of the Jews were saying about him, and the disciples like, hey, Jesus, that's just what everyone's saying. But notice how Jesus turns the question on them, because the exam, it really gets a little more interesting, a little more personal. In verse 29, when he turns it and he says to them, but what about you, he asked Who do you say I am? And Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Now, Peter was the first to answer, and that's not unusual. Uh, He was usually the first to answer. It's typical of Peter. And the answer that Jesus got from Peter was the one he wanted to hear. I mean, it is the right answer. And it follows that question when Jesus asks, who do you say that I am? You know, as we talked about a couple of weeks ago here at Genesis, that's the decision that each of us has to make. That's the question that you have to answer for yourself. I mean, you owe it to yourself, if you haven't already, to come to terms with what you think about this man, this man that people are still talking about 2,000 years after he walked the earth. I mean, when it comes to Jesus, who do you say that he is? I mean, how do you answer a question like that with your mouth? with your heart? How do you answer a question like that in your mind? I mean, that, that, that means that it doesn't matter what your friends have to say about him. It doesn't matter what a coworker or a, you know, a roommate has to say about him. It doesn't have necessarily anything to do with what a professor says about Jesus or even your spouse. I mean, you have to make that decision for yourself. You have to make up your own mind. Your parents can't make up your mind for you. You must make this decision for yourself. Jesus wants to know, who do you say that I am? Now, notice Peter's response. He says, you are the Messiah. Now, some translations say you are the Christ. That's the Greek word. Uh, uh, Peter used the word Messiah, which is the same Hebrew word. And and the meaning is basically the same. It's the anointed one. And Peter is declaring that Jesus Christ is the promised one. He is declaring that Jesus is the Son of God. And you know what? In a few minutes... Uh, You're going to hear a number of stories of individuals who are going to come forward. We're going to hear them all day long, of people from Genesis who have made a decision in their life to trust Jesus as their Lord and Savior, as their Messiah. And they're going to be baptized as a way of declaring, you know, what they believe about him. They're going to be baptized as a way of declaring their answer to the question, who do you say 
that I am. And um, I, I just want to take a moment and just remind you that it's not too late for you. Um, because if you came today, and, and maybe for you, you've already invited Jesus Christ to be your Lord and Savior, but you know this is something that you've never done before. You've never taken that step to be baptized. Uh, it's not too late for you. Or we know, and we've been praying, and we believe that maybe even for some of you today, you've been coming, and you're just you're right there on the edge of making that own decision in your life to trust Jesus Christ as your Lord and, and Savior. And if you came today, and you weren't planning to be baptized, but you feel God moving in you in that way, and you want to make that decision, uh, we're ready. Uh, we, we'd love to help you get baptized today. We've got extra towels. We've got extra trunks. We've got extra T-shirts. Uh, we'll do whatever we can to help you get ready. And uh, you can come up after the service today and you can just say, hey, I really think I'm ready. And we'd love to help you in that decision today. And we can baptize you uh, after the first service. We can baptize you in the next service. You can come back tonight and bring all of your family and friends with you. And we can baptize you tonight. But what would keep you? Uh, what would keep you from making such an important statement in your life, that statement to acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord? I, I promise you uh, that these people that are going to get baptized in a moment, they don't regret it, and, and you won't regret uh, making such a decision either. So Jesus asks the question, who do you say that I am? And it's not the only time uh, that he asked this question in this particular chapter of the story. Uh, it comes up a little later uh, in another story we read about this past week in John chapter 11. And, and I want to take a look at that one with you briefly. In John chapter 11, um, he starts in verse 1. It says, now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany the village of Mary and her sister Martha, and then we get a little parenthetical note here, this Mary whose brother Lazarus now lay sick was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. Verse 3, so, so the sister sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. Notice those words, the Lord, the, the Lord, the one you love is sick. Now, we know in reading these words that Lazarus must have been a longtime friend of Jesus. And not only Lazarus, but also Mary and Martha, his sisters, too. Verse 4 says, when he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus wasn't just simply downplaying the seriousness of this situation. I mean, he, he wasn't doing that. And his disciples may have thought at first that he was. Um, but what Jesus was doing is he was acknowledging that Lazarus' death was not an ultimate and a final act. Basically, that God, his father, would have the final word in this situation. Well, Either you know this story, you've heard this story a hundred times, or you're smart enough to take a guess in how it's going to end, um, but Jesus and the disciples, what happens next are they are magically transported uh, to this other place, and Jesus pulls a little Mr. Miyagi magic, you remember, the, and, and he heals the man. Not really, he didn't do that. A little 80s reference to the karate kid. It, it, it didn't really happen like that, but, but here's what happened. Look at verse 6. It says, so when he heard that Lazarus was sick... He stayed where he was two more days. And then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. I don't know about you, but at first glance, that's a bit of a surprise. He stayed where he was two more days. I mean, what do you make of this? I mean, how do you reason something like this? I mean, you know, maybe you look at it and think, well, you know, Jesus is obviously very busy. Uh, he's got a very jam-packed schedule. I mean, everybody's wanting a little time, a little something, you know, from Jesus or something. And, you know, with family and work and jobs and responsibilities, I mean, every one of us can, can relate to a degree that he must have been busy. I mean, maybe you'd say he was busy. You know, he had a couple of projects to finish first, but it doesn't say that. 
I mean, look at verse 6 again. It says, so when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. And it's almost kind of like you've got to emphasize the so, or other translations say yet. Your Bible might say now. I mean, it's there on purpose. It really gives us kind of a hint. And, and scholars, commentators kind of have different opinions on why Jesus waited. I mean, some say that he waited until Lazarus was, you know, indisputably dead. Uh, others say that he waited because it was going to make the miracle even greater, you know, when he went and when he raised Lazarus from the dead. Um, but to really understand the reason for Jesus' delay, you kind of have to read these verses backwards. And, and here's what I mean by that. Verse 6 says that Jesus stayed behind two more days because verse 5 says he loved Martha and her sister Lazarus. And then verse 4 says this is for God's glory so that God's Son may be glorified through it. And I just think it shows us once again that Jesus was always acting according to the will of his Father. Like that is what was first and most important. And he came and he lived his life and he performed these miracles as a way of bringing glory to his Father in heaven. And so he's waiting so that God's going to get the credit that God's going to get all of the glory through this. And I just think this is so important to see because maybe, maybe for some of you right now, you're going through, you know, what you would call some garbage, you know, in your life. And you don't know why and you don't know when it's going to end. You don't know if God's going to act or what he's going to do or if he's even going to do anything. But all you know is that it's painful and you don't like it. And maybe if you're honest with yourself, I mean, you look at the mess in your life that you're in right now and even if we've created it, I mean, you don't want to be there, or, or, or we don't want to be sick, even if our actions, you know, help to contribute to that, or we don't want to go through the divorce, you know, even if we agree to it. But notice what Jesus says. This sickness will not end to death. It is to bring God, it's to bring God glory. God's glory will shine through it. And here's what happens next. Uh, after staying for two more days, Jesus and his disciples, they leave for Judea, and they get to Bethany. They get to the village where Mary and Martha and Lazarus live, and they find Lazarus. And he's been dead in the tomb for four days now. But before Jesus gets to town, Martha meets Jesus on the street. And of course, she's hurt. She's heartbroken. And you can hear it in her words. Look at John chapter 11, verse 21. She said, Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been there, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Can you put yourself there? Like, can you hear, can you hear the pain and some of the desperation in Martha's words. I mean, it's a complaint and a plea at the very same time. I mean, on, on the one hand, in her mind, Jesus had missed an opportunity. And I got to tell you, boy, I can feel like that at times too. You ever felt like that? I mean, can you be that honest with yourself to look at a situation and say, wow, I mean, I mean, it just really seems like Jesus missed an opportunity. Like, you know, when cancer finally wins and someone loses a battle. Man, Jesus, I mean, I want to try and get it, but it really seems like you missed an opportunity here. Or, you know, a marriage finally draws to a close and, and, and divorce is final and you've prayed and you've prayed and you've prayed for that marriage or for your marriage. But it's just like, man, Jesus, I mean, it, it almost seems like you really missed an opportunity. Or, or you think about a couple who waits and prays and waits and prays trying to get pregnant, still waiting. And you can't help but think, you know, Jesus, you're really missing an opportunity here. It's about waiting and trusting, and it's a tough place to be. And it's so difficult to understand. But while Martha is hurt and maybe a little discouraged, 
I want you to see the faith in her too. Look at verse 22. She says, but I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. She says this to Jesus. And I just think so much this is the key to prayer, really. The key to prayer is believing that he can. You know, we talked about that a month or so ago, that the key to prayer is believing that he can. It's praying knowing that he can, believing that he can. And Martha's faith and maturity in this moment really is pretty impressive. I mean, she doesn't understand why things have happened or why they haven't happened, but notice that she still believes. And even in the disappointment and even in the frustration, she believes that God can. Now, will he? Well, she hopes, and she still believes, but if you continue reading this story, you'll see that she expresses her confidence that no matter how this thing plays out, she's got hope and peace that God will raise Lazarus in another life, in another time, and in another place, and that he will live eternally with God in heaven. And what a great lesson and a great reminder for you and me, too, that no matter where you are today, no matter where you are in your life right now, no matter how bad or how great it is, don't give up on God just yet. I mean, he's not finished. I mean, it's not too late. And our God, what he can do is he can take whatever's wrong in your life and he can make it right. That he can take our circumstances, he can take, um, he can take your hurting and your frustration and even your confusion and he can heal you. Uh, God can take something bad and, and something tragic and he can bring good from it. Uh, he can turn your circumstances uh, around and he can bring you out of the grave just like he's going to do with Lazarus here in just a moment. Now, I promised you the final exam question would come up again. I mean, just like Peter and the disciples were asked, look at how Jesus asked the same of Martha too in a roundabout sort of way in John chapter 11 again over in verse 25. Jesus said to her, he responded to her like this, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. And then he asked another question. Do you believe this? He asked Martha pointedly, do you believe this? And notice her response. Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. Jesus asked her, Martha, do you believe? Do you, who, who do you say that I am? And just notice that in her pain, and the miracle hasn't been performed yet. She responds, even in her sorrow, she replies, yes, Lord, you are the Savior, you are the Messiah, you are the Son of God. Now, what becomes of Lazarus? Well, Jesus is going to turn this funeral into a party, and he walks to the tomb where Lazarus lay, and through a remarkable demonstration of God's incredible grace and power, God raised Lazarus from the dead. And the timing and the foreshadowing of this event is so important because Lazarus walks out of the tomb and into new life. And just like very soon, Jesus himself would walk out of the tomb so that Lazarus could have new life and so that people like you and me can have new life too. For those who believe and those who trust, Jesus Christ is ready and able to offer new life too. You know, here's one thing. I can't do for you today. Um, I, I, with your circumstances, uh, with your questions, uh, with your challenges that are before you right now, whatever your problems may be, I can't promise you how God will respond to your situation. Can't do it. Um, I, I can't answer why God sometimes answers prayer and why other times it seems like he's absent or not responding. 
But what I can do is I can promise you that there is one miracle that he will perform 100% of the time, and it's the prayer that you pray when you say and when you believe, Lord Jesus, will you forgive my sins? Will you cleanse my heart? Will you come into my life to be my Lord and Savior today? I can guarantee you, I can promise you that he answers that prayer every single time, 100% of the time. And we pray a prayer like that when we're ready to acknowledge, to answer the Lord's question, who do you say I am with words like, I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. How about you? Do you know that? Do you believe that? Have you answered that question confidently for your own life? I mean, do you know a love like that, that our God in heaven gave his own son who sacrificed his life so that we could have life? And that's the power of the gospel. That's the good news. And that we've been invited into a life, we've been invited into a relationship with Jesus Christ. That that good news uh, invites us into a relationship, but it's that same good news that sustains us and carries us every single day, no matter how long you've known Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. 22 people are going to get baptized across two campuses uh, with Genesis Church today in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. But my question is, what about you? Have you answered that question? Have you responded to that invitation in your life to trust Jesus as Lord and Savior? You can do that right now. Will you pray with me? As you bow your heads and close your eyes, um, I just want to ask you again, um, who do you say that he is? Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And he says, whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Do you have this confidence and this hope in your life today? If you've never invited Jesus Christ to be your Lord and Savior, and you want to do that today, I just want you to know that he's waiting and he's available to you. And he is ready to rescue you. And it doesn't matter uh, what you've done or where you've been. Uh, you, you, you can't bring anything but your heart and your life to it. And just these words to say, Lord Jesus, I trust you. If you've never invited him to be your Lord and Savior, just pray these words with me uh, wherever you're right now. Just say them uh, to yourself. You can say them out loud if you'd like. Lord Jesus, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah, the Son of God. Forgive me of my sins. Cleanse my heart. I'm ready to follow you today. And Lord, I thank you for those who have prayed that prayer today. We celebrate uh, and we know, Lord, that you are celebrating today uh, for those who have come home. And uh, we just pray for those that have made that decision in their life, uh, uh, that they would take a step now uh, from this place to, to talk to somebody about it, to talk to us up front afterwards, to seek out a friend, um, somebody that they can trust. And, uh, Lord, that you would just continue growing in them and moving in them each day to understand and, and know the confidence that they can have in Jesus Christ as Savior. And maybe, uh, maybe that baptism is next today. Uh, Lord, I pray that you'd give them the confidence in that decision. Uh, we thank you, Father. We thank you uh, that you make all things possible. And, and God, I also want to pray uh, for those here today who know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And I pray that today would be a reminder, a confident reminder of what you've done for us in Jesus. That your grace saves us and it keeps us living and it keeps us moving. And I pray that we can be confidently reminded of that today as we celebrate life change, as we celebrate the truth 
truth and the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, Lord, it is our desire and it is my prayer uh, that we would surrender everything to you and really commit with all of our heart and every bit of our lives that we want to follow you in any and everything. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.